Hey everyone, I just want to give you a heads up. This episode is a lot more graphic than our usual episodes. We felt we couldn't tell this case properly without including some of the details. So if you'd like to avoid the graphic content, at about the 16-minute mark, you can skip ahead just past 25 minutes, and that should get you past the worst of it. The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. On a Thanksgiving weekend in Knoxville, Tennessee, Lisa and Joel Guy eagerly prepared for their children's arrival, unaware of a gruesome plot being concocted behind the scenes. The couple had been anticipating retirement when there was a sudden and horrific turn of events. Join me now as we take a look at a savage crime that had a community shocked by the utter brutality and senselessness of it all you'll learn how a holiday meant to be filled with thankfulness was destroyed for a family by pure selfishness and greed. People often wonder what a peaceful country life must be like, removed from the hustle and bustle of society, nestled in tall rolling hills, passing time in tranquility. That was exactly the type of home Lisa and Joel Guy had built for themselves and their children. The family lived in Hardin Valley, Tennessee, where verdant green mountains soar high above the grassy plains and valleys. Part idyllic countryside, part bustling burg, the area of Hardin Valley is located just west of the heart of Knoxville and east of the twisting and sparkling Melton Lake. The citizens of Knoxville celebrate its vivid history as the first capital of the state and its fame for delectable smoked meats. Lisa and Joel lived in an elegantly built two-story brick home within a residential housing complex on Golden View Lane. Surrounded by swaying trees and lush green hills, the couple set about building their lives together. Joel had been married before meeting Lisa Madeer, and his three daughters, Chandis, Michelle, and Angela, were highly supportive of their father's new relationship. When the couple tied the knot in 1985, Lisa wholeheartedly embraced her new stepdaughters with love and affection, treating them as her own. In 1988, Lisa became pregnant and gave birth to a baby boy, who they named Joel Michael Jr. Soon Lisa became a stay-at-home mom while Joel Sr. worked as an engineering designer, working hard to provide a comfortable life for his family. He made sure all of his children had the opportunity to receive a proper education, hoping to set them all on a path for success. Joel Michael was enrolled in a boarding school called the Louisiana School for Math, Science, and the Arts. Located in Natchitoches, Louisiana, the school was known for producing some of the most promising young scholars, entrepreneurs, philanthropists, and artists. Joel Michael graduated from this prestigious school in 2006. His plan was to attend George Washington University 
in Washington, D.C., but after only attending one semester, he returned to Louisiana, transferring to Louisiana State University. He continued his studies off and on for nine years, his attention to them somewhat sporadic. His mind was set on the lofty and lucrative occupation of a plastic surgeon. While studying, he lived mostly on his own, in an apartment located in Louisiana's capital, Baton Rouge. Although Baton Rouge isn't the most expensive city to live in, Joel Michael benefited from his parents not only funding his studies, but also his housing and other expenses. Once he and his older sisters had all grown up and left the nest, Lisa began working as an accounts payable administrator at Jacobs Engineering in Oak Ridge. It was a job she took on not only to bolster their household income, but to also ensure they always had enough money to float Joel Michael through school. In fact, the majority of Lisa's wages went straight to her son's expenses. By the time he started college, Lisa and Joel Sr. had celebrated 31 years of marriage and by 2015 had become the proud grandparents of six grandchildren. When the pair weren't working, they could often be found indulging in outdoor activities with their grandchildren. Hiking, camping, and fishing were just a few of the things they loved doing together. But there was one thing preventing them from enjoying their lives even more. Joel Sr. was 61 by that point, and Lisa was 55, and both were beginning to feel the strain of their age creeping in on them. Although Joel Sr. loved his job, he couldn't ignore his body any longer. The subtle aches and pains let him know it was time to slow things down. And so the guys both agreed it was finally time to settle into a well-earned retirement. Naturally, they'd need to drastically cut back on their expenses. And as empty nesters, their warm family home had become too large for just the two of them. That's when they decided to put their home on the market a bittersweet choice after spending a lifetime raising their children in it. The couple planned on purchasing a smaller home in Hawkins County, Tennessee, about 75 miles northeast of Knoxville. With its forests, gushing streams, and rocky trails, Lisa and Joel believed it was the perfect place to retire, where better for two nature lovers to put down their roots. But there was one matter they urgently needed to address. Although Joel Michael Jr. hadn't been living at home for several years, his parents had kept his bedroom exactly the way he'd left it. Whenever he and his sisters visited their parents' home at the same time, Joel Michael rarely came out of his bedroom. Resembling somewhat of a time capsule, a worn toy box sat in the corner of his room, along with pictures of his childhood, depicting a brighter, more enthusiastic time in Joel Michael's life. With the upcoming sale of their home and retirement just around the corner, changes had to be made to the guy's expenses. Joel and Lisa decided they'd have to stop financially supporting their son. A tough decision, especially knowing their son was still hip-deep in his studies. But by that point, he was 27 years old. It was about time for him to start taking the responsibilities of being an adult. In the near decade since Joel Michael had started school, he never once needed to support himself. Lisa and Joel Sr. knew it was going to come as a total shock to him, so they continued stalling, breaking the news to him. But time was running out, and it wouldn't be fair to leave it until the last minute. 
They needed to at least give him a warning so he'd have some time to prepare. They planned on holding one final Thanksgiving in their home and invited the entire family to celebrate. Lisa and Joel figured it would be as good a time as any to inform Joel Michael of the changes that were coming. Weeks passed and finally the big night had arrived. On November 23rd, 2016, Joel Michael made the grueling nine-hour drive from Baton Rouge to Knoxville. The guy's daughters, Chandice and Angela, weren't able to attend, but Michelle, her boyfriend, and their three sons were. Michelle was surprised when she arrived and saw her brother already there. The happiness of the festivities soon took over, easing the worries of the past year. Even Joel Michael seemed to be enjoying himself, with Michelle noticing for the first time he actually showed an interest in playing with her sons, even giving the boys a few of his childhood toys. She couldn't help but feel relieved when she saw her brother acting somewhat normal for once, even content. She knew her parents had likely broken the news to him by that point, which made it even more surprising to see him so upbeat. But the holiday was bittersweet. Everyone knew it would be the last time they'd all spend time together in the family home. To commemorate the occasion, everyone stood outside and took one final picture together. Michelle was bewildered when she learned Joel Michael planned to stay a few extra days with their parents. She wished she could have stayed longer too, but needed to get her family back home. Lisa and Joel were happy that their son wanted to spend more time with them, and on November 25th, decided to take him on a grand tour of their future home in Hawkins County. To their relief, he actually appeared to be happy for them. Things finally seemed to be falling into place, and Lisa and Joel heaved a sigh of relief now that the difficult conversation was behind them. After Thanksgiving, life resumed for the guys. Lisa had put her notice of retirement in and now had less than a week left before she finally finished working for good. But on Monday, November 28th, Lisa failed to show up for work. Her supervisor, Jennifer Whitehead, was immediately concerned. Although Lisa hadn't been working with her that long, it had been long enough for Jennifer to know it was wildly out of character for her colleague to be a no-show. After waiting a few hours and still no word from Lisa, Jennifer decided to contact authorities, requesting they do a welfare check at the guy's home. But when officers knocked on the guy's residence door, there was no answer. Only a dog barking frantically inside. Both Lisa and Joel's vehicles were in the driveway, so officers tried again, announcing their presence by pounding on the door. Still, no one answered. Strangely, the dog sounded as if it was trapped somewhere in the house, as it hadn't run to the door like you might expect. When officers peered through the window by the front door, they could see grocery bags lying abandoned and scattered throughout the foyer. Something didn't seem right. As the officers grew more concerned for the couple's safety, they finally made the decision to make their way inside. As they opened the door, officers were met by a tidal wave of heat, as if they'd stepped inside of an oven. But even more unsettling than the heat was the smell. 
A rotten, sickening odor wafted throughout the entire house, causing a few of the officers to feel nauseated. Wearing body cameras, they made their way throughout the home, calling out to the guys, but there was still no answer. As they ventured deep inside the home, the smell became even worse, searing their nostrils. But nothing could have prepared them for the horrors they were soon to encounter. It was a massacre. In every room, officers found grisly evidence of a brutal attack, including blood-stained carpets and tiles, cleaning supplies and plastic bags of all kinds littered on the floor. Upstairs, they finally found the family dog trapped in a bedroom and the thermostat set to 90 degrees Fahrenheit. In the guy's exercise room, police stumbled across a set of severed hands lying on the floor. What had started out as a simple welfare check had become something far more gruesome, and it was about to get worse. In two large plastic bins was a nauseating mixture of acid and what appeared to be human remains. Officers also found a large steel pot simmering on the stove. Inside was Lisa Guy's severed head, submerged in corrosive boiling liquid. The home was so toxic that a special team of hazmat workers were needed to process the scene for the next two days. The ghastly scene was left in a way suggesting the perpetrator might return at any moment. Upon further examination, officers located a backpack containing a notebook with what appeared to be random scribblings. However, looking more closely, the badly handwritten notes revealed something far more sinister. It contained an extensive to-do list, taking the reader on a step-by-step -step process of how Lisa and Joel Sr. had been murdered and what had been done to their remains. It also contained detailed information about the financial assets the couple had amassed, including a $500,000 life insurance policy on Lisa. Realizing the last person to see the couple alive was Joel Michael Jr., police rushed to his apartment in Baton Rouge to arrest him. When they finally apprehended him, he was getting into his car. When they looked inside of his trunk, they discovered a meat grinder. Joel Michael was then charged with first-degree murder for the death of his parents. He wasted no time in filing a motion to suppress the evidence discovered in his home, claiming it didn't qualify as evidence without a valid search warrant. Knox County Criminal Court Judge Steve Sword granted the motion and the majority of the evidence recovered from Joel Michael's apartment couldn't be used by the prosecution. While Joel Michael sat in jail, the case took nearly four years to come to trial. In the meantime, the couple's three daughters were left to mourn and ask one question, why? While awaiting trial, Joel Michael continued submitting handwritten court filings, attempting to claim the insurance money his parents left behind. His case finally went to court on September 28, 2020. Hector Sanchez, who headed the prosecution, put forth as much evidence as he could, arguing that the murders of Lisa and Joel Sr. had been premeditated. 
and that the grim notebook that had been found proved it. It appeared Joel Michael had been planning to murder his parents as early as November 7th of 2016. But if Lisa and Joel hadn't told their son about their plans to cut him off financially until the Thanksgiving weekend, why had he decided to murder them before he heard the news? Was it possible he suspected the announcement was coming? To prove when Joe Michael started planning to kill his parents, Assistant DA General Leslie Nassos presented the notes that described in great detail what he planned to do, how he would do it, and what supplies he would need. Medical examiner Dr. Amy Haas was brought in to testify. Would you please introduce yourself to the jury? Sure. My name is Dr. Amy Hawes. In November of 2016, where were you employed? I was employed and as, as an assistant medical examiner at the Knox County Regional Forensic Center here in Knoxville. Discuss the contents of your report and your findings with respect to Mr. Guy. Sure. The autopsy is uh, an examination of the outside of the inside of the body. And the first thing to note with Mr. Guy is um, his remains had been dismembered. The arms had been removed at the shoulders. The legs had been removed at the hips. His head was completely skeletonized. And there was some area uh, of defect of the bone of the, the forehead um, the, the bone in that area was in such poor um, condition that it was impossible to tell whether that was from the chemicals in which the, the skull had been or whether it was from blunt trauma. Um, there was skin remaining primarily on the back of Mr. Guy, approximately from his lower neck around his buttocks and the remainder of the skin was gone. The remainder of the skin had been dissolved by chemicals. And with the skin being gone, it basically exposed bare muscle in some of the subcutaneous tissue. So the, the remains were in a, uh, a very complex and, and difficult uh, state um, to, uh, to examine and to describe. Joel's injuries were then described in further disturbing details. So the numbers of wounds that I give is uh, an at least number, meaning so much of the tissue was gone, so much of the skin was gone, that it's impossible for me to give an exact counting. So the wounds that I could see and document primarily were on Mr. Guy's back where the skin still was relatively intact. And on the skin of his back, he had what I identified as 34 sharp force injuries. And sharp force injuries are either stabs or cuts. These sharp force injuries, uh, again, extended from um, up near about the area of his shoulder down to his buttocks. They were on both sides. The wounds ranged from about one inches in length to about seven inches in length. And the maximum depth was about six inches. Associated with these stab wounds, I identified injuries to the liver, lungs, and kidneys, and ribs. Again, there likely was more. Uh, because of the dismemberment process, uh, it was some of the uh, cuts, it was difficult to tell if it was part of the dismemberment process or actually a sharp force injury that occurred while Mr. Guy was still alive. Dr. Haas also described 
the vicious and horrific nature of Lisa's injuries to the already shocked courtroom. So like Mr. Ga, uh, Mrs. Ga was also dismembered. Uh, there was some differences uh, in the uh, degree to which she was dismembered and the way she was dismembered. Her head was uh, completely severed from her body. Um, her arms were disarticulated at the shoulders and her legs were disarticulated at the knees. So in comparison to Mr. Guy who had his legs disarticulated at the hips, Mrs. Guy's um, legs were at the knees. So her, her thighs were still intact. Her thighs were still attached onto her body, but her head was completely severed and her arms were completely severed. Much like Mr. Guy, the skin of her back was still relatively well preserved. Um, compared to her front, where there was almost no skin left. Um, Mrs. Guy's head was found in a, uh, a large pot in liquid in the kitchen. Uh, Miss Guy had multiple sharp force injuries on her back. She had at least 25, and again, I'm having to do a little bit of a hedge because of the, the, the degree to which the remains were altered. Um, again, the wounds were on both sides of her back. They were approximately six to seven inches deep. They included injuries to the heart, so the right ventricle or the right side of her heart, the aorta in her abdomen, which is the major blood vessel that, that leaves the heart and feeds the, um, the lower portion of the body. Both lungs were injured, the left kidney, the liver, and her third uh, thoracic vertebra. So a bone in the spine also appeared to be injured. The notebook Joel Michael had left behind was filled with ominous instructions, such as flushing evidence down the toilet instead of putting it in the garbage disposal and turning up the heat to melt away fingerprints. It also listed chemicals that could be combined to form acid baths for disposing of body parts. The nightmarish concoction police had discovered the guy's remains floating in. The notebook even suggested that Joel Michael had planned to frame his father. Detective Rachel Sandlin read a page from the notebook containing some of Joel Michael's heinous plans for his parents. Get carving knives to make small pieces. Get sledgehammer. Crush bones. Bring blender and food grinder. Grind meat. Get bleach. Denature proteins. Get plastic bin for denaturation process. Keep going. Does not matter where they're killed. Just get rid of bloody spots to prevent evidence of time of death not the mattress or the couches. Get rid of bodies inside house. There and my DNA already there. Open up doggy door to provide entryway. Flush chunks down toilet, not garbage disposal. Get plastic sheeting for disposal process. And then the part that's crossed out, get hollow point bullets just in case. Will be seen buying bullets just use computer room gun. Check to make sure there are bullets. Last resort. He's not alive to claim her half of the insurance. Money. And then an arrow. All mine. 500000 Flood the house. Covers. Forensic evidence. 
Turn heater up as high as it goes. Speeds decomposition. Bleach reacts with luminol, just like blood. Douse area with bleach. Big sprayer. Lie. Trash compactor. Body gives time of death and an arrow alibi. Don't have to get rid of body if there is no forensic evidence on the body. His fingerprints and DNA. In one section, Joel Michael wrote that skin from his father should be placed beneath his mother's fingernails once their bodies have been cleaned. Cut off his arm and plant his flesh under her fingernails. Place her hand with his DNA so that his DNA is not washed away by the shower. Use sodium hydroxide to destroy his soft tissue and soften bones for transport. Baste once every hour to accelerate. Flush sodium hydroxide down the toilet. Wash out bin with handheld shower head and then direct handheld into toilet to flush everything out of the pipes and into the public waterway. Joel Michael also noted that with the bodies gone, the time of death would be eliminated and he could build his alibi. It appeared he planned on becoming the sole beneficiary of his mother's life insurance policy if his father disappeared entirely. The methodical detail in which he wrote his notes showed he'd spent an incredible amount of time researching and planning. At one point, he even considered burning the entire home to the ground, effectively destroying all evidence of his crimes. However, that plan was scrapped when he realized all of his father's assets lay in property value, and destroying it would drastically lower the insurance payout. Joel Michael had even arranged for a text message to be sent from his mother's phone to prove that she was still alive long after he returned to Baton Rouge. Hector Sanchez presented receipts proving he bought chemicals at a Knoxville Walmart. CCTV footage also showed him walking through the same Walmart buying medical supplies for his hand, which had been cut during his attacks. Lead investigator Jeremy McCord described the footage as it was shown to the jury. He's going through the uh, the pharmacy, uh, the sections labeled pharmacy, pain, and nicotine section for their camera purposes, and he's uh, in the first aid section. Uh, on the video, you can see that um, he has what appears to be bandages um, uh, covering some type of injury on his on his right and left hands. Hector laid out a reconstruction of the attack. Joel Michael's notes suggested he planned on killing his father first while his mother was out shopping. CCTV footage showed Lisa buying groceries at the same Walmart Joel Michael had visited a few days later. It was determined Joel Michael had attacked his father with a large kitchen knife in the upstairs workout room. During the struggle, he suffered a deep cut on one of his hands. Judging from the shopping bags that laid scattered just inside the door, it's theorized Joel Michael had ambushed his mother just as he had his father. He then set to work on his ghastly plan. Dr. Haas confirmed the cause of death was difficult to determine due to the state of the bodies, but suggested the pair had died within minutes of each other. University of Tennessee forensic anthropologist Murray Marks testified to the level of difficulty Joel Michael would have been faced with while dismembering two human bodies. Although Joel Michael had been thorough in his research, 
He'd been sloppy in covering up his crime. The notebook he'd left behind was the smoking gun prosecutors had hoped for, basically a signed confession by the murderer. Joel Michael's defense attorney, Mark Stevens, used the testimony of his sisters to contend his client couldn't have been the killer. Describe what you all did throughout the day. We, we, um, it's the, no, I don't know if it's usual for everyone else, but ours is we, you hang out in the garage and you laugh and you talk and you tell the same stories and then you move to different spots. So we moved at one point to the back porch, um, this day was a little different. It's, it was always more, the typical time with Dad and Lisa was more laughing and banter, but if Joel Michael Jr. was there, he wasn't ever hanging with us doing that banter. He would be in his room, okay, except for on Thanksgiving. And uh, at some point, did he interact, though, with your children? The Thanksgiving was different. The um, Thanksgiving was completely different. The moment that I... Um, arrived, Joel Michael Jr. was um, talking to us. And so, and he had never, I, I'm not sure Joel Michael Jr. knew my kids' names. And so um, for him to t talk to them was, was odd. And so he was talking to my kids and he was bringing them upstairs. They had, Lisa had kept every single thing that this kid had that, I mean, he wasn't a kid at that point, but his entire everything, beanie babies that he had collected, things that he had put on the shelf like eggs, science stuff, and she memorialized, it's not a word. No. Memorialized. Yes, that word. Um, his, enti his entire life in boxes upstairs, and so they were bringing those boxes down, but it wasn't Lisa giving that away. Lisa wouldn't Lisa didn't want to give it away. Um, it was Joel Michael giving, Joel Michael Jr. giving it to my boys, which was still odd. Michelle had stated her brother had been noticeably outgoing and happy on the Thanksgiving weekend, which was unusual. His attorney argued that with such a content demeanor, Joel Michael couldn't have possibly have been planning to murder his parents. That weekend, Joel Guy was outgoing, friendly, and happy in a way Michelle Tyler had never seen him before. Outgoing, friendly, and happy. That was not a man about to commit a homicide. Outgoing, friendly, and happy. The prosecution disagreed. Outgoing, friendly, and happy. Now I bet he was that he felt very outgoing and friendly and happy. Michelle Tyler told you that uh, that was unusual, okay? His demeanor on Thanksgiving was strange. He was usually distant. He was usually kept to himself. He didn't interact a lot with his family. He didn't have uh, much of a relationship with his family. And, and there are reasons for that. Uh, you know, he lived away. He lived in Baton Rouge. He didn't live in Sergoinsville. He didn't live in Knoxville. Uh, he. Uh, you know, had no reason really to have close uh, relations with people who were older than him and who lived in different places. Despite that, uh, these were people who, uh, who were close, a caring family, 
a loving family and they all knew each other's business and they all knew exactly what was going on and they all knew about the plans that Joel and Lisa had to retire and to take a break from life okay and uh, why would he be outgoing and happy when he had been distant from them in the past well I submit to you it's because he was getting ready to get what he wanted to implement his plan he wanted to deflect attention from himself he wanted to be nice he was playing nice uh, in his mind uh, he's thinking well I'm gonna not give them any reason to suspect me I'm not gonna act like I'm mad I'm not gonna show them I'm mad I'm gonna be I'm gonna make an effort to talk to uh, the grandsons my nephews I'm gonna I'm gonna give away my toys I'm gonna give away my beanie babies uh, I'm gonna speak to Michelle I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna interact you know I'm gonna make this a, a, a nice holiday for everyone so uh, when ultimately the bodies are discovered uh, people are gonna reflect back and they're gonna they're gonna be able to say well you know Joel Michael was he was nice that weekend he was in a good mood he was okay um, but it was an act it was a show uh, and it was uh, it was to deflect attention from himself because if he had acted angry if he had an argument with his mother if he'd had it out with mom and dad over the fact that they were gonna cut him off I mean how would that look when their bodies turn up if you know later or maybe their bodies don't turn up because he actually carries out his entire plan and is able to flush them into the public waterway the Knoxville Attorney General argued that the motive for Joel Michael's savage crime was simply money you know it's about money that sounds uh, sounds so uh, so terrible to think that you could kill your mother and your father for money but that's really pretty much what it all boils down to and that is evidenced also by his writing by the notebook money all mine he had made calculations he had thought about it he uh, he spent some time I mean it's sort of a, a meticulous account of his intentions most of Joel Michael's adult life had been spent taking medical courses Eventually, the court learned that he dropped out of college in 2015. Not having a job meant if his parents retired, the financial support would stop. An abrupt change he wasn't willing to face. And so what did he do? Joel Michael took the most unimaginable path to try to maintain the lifestyle he'd become accustomed to. The only thing that stopped him from covering up his crime was the deep cut he sustained during the initial attack on his father. Hector Sanchez concluded that everything the guys had done for their son had been done out of pure love and a desire to see him achieve success and independence. Joel Sr.'s family took the stand on several occasions during the trial. His sister Robin said she couldn't believe her nephew was capable of something so horrific her voice breaking as she lamented her loss. Joel Michael Jr.'s sister Chandice remarked their family would never be the same. Dad and Lisa were wonderful. They were larger than life. They were so happy. They were such really good people. And they loved him. They loved him so much. They loved all of us. 
and for anyone to do what he did. I don't understand it. He has taken something from myself, from my children, his, Dad and Lisa's grandchildren, my husband, our fa everyone in our family. He has taken something from us that we'll never get back. Lisa's brother shared how their mother, Joel Michael's grandmother, had been hospitalized just a few days after the murders. Days after of hearing of Joel and Lisa's murder, my mother was hospitalized. She never exited, exited the hospital. The loss of your child was difficult for her, one that I hope I never have to endure. To find out your daughter was murdered by your own grandchild was heartbreaking. She could not even attend his, uh, the funeral. She was unable to say her final prayers. She was Catholic, she was unable to take communion at her daughter's funeral. The next day after we buried Joel and, Joel and Lisa, my mother died. My sister Lisa Guy was truly one of the most loving, caring, and forgiving people on the face of this earth. Her husband, my brother-in-law, Joe Guy Sr., was honestly one of the most down-to-earth, hard-working, and kind people I ever met. They were the type of people who would help anyone out whenever they could. My sister was the type of person who loved, who loved deeply. Her love was taken. It was taken from this world by, by murder. Throughout all the emotional testimony, Joel Michael's face never changed. He remained expressionless the entire time, even when the medical examiner described his parents' injuries. On October 2nd, 2020, the jury delivered their verdict, finding Joel Michael guilty on all charges, including two counts of first-degree murder, three counts of felony murder, and two counts of abuse of a corpse. On November 19th, the judge imposed two life sentences, plus four additional years for the two counts of abuse of a corpse. Lisa and Joel Sr. were robbed of more than just their lives. They were robbed of their well-deserved future and the chance to spend time with their grandchildren and see them grow. Joel Michael Jr. was Lisa's only biological child. While she adored her stepdaughters, he had always held a special place in her heart. She spent her entire life doing everything she could to ensure he succeeded. In return, Joel Michael betrayed that trust and love, seeing his parents only as a means to an end. Lisa and Joel had been happily married for 31 years, and if there is one thing that's for certain, it's that the boundless love they felt for each other overflowed to everyone they cherished, including Joel Michael.
A huge thank you to the following new Patreon supporters. Stacy, Rose K, Avon W, Winter M, Jessica W, Desiree H, Ann C, Melanie C, Elizabeth B, Edna M, Nicole M, and Ian W. So thank you once again. It's your support that keeps the show going. And now I would like to introduce to you the podcast, Lady Justice, True Crime. Hello, my lovelies. My name is Chantelle, and I'm the host over at Lady Justice, True Crime. Lady Justice is a weekly podcast that covers fascinating cases, both past and present, from around the UK and Ireland. Some of them are strange. Many are unbelievable. All of them are completely unique and are someone's story. So please come join me on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and all other podcast platforms. Ad-free episodes of this show are available on Stitcher Premium. If you would like to support this show and get some extra perks, including extra content, early release, and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. You can find our website by going to mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness. And on Twitter, using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track, Feel the Madness, is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerrorecords.com.au slash G-E.